For weeks now, weeks that have become months, we've been traveling through James. And we've come four chapters. They've been instructive chapters. They've been direct chapters. Sometimes they cut close. Sometimes they're, they're instruction to, that we're reaching for. You make plans. Be careful with those plans. You know you have to be tentative because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. And James is going to talk about that in the, in the verses today. Boasting about tomorrow is the topic. Will you stand with me, please, if you would? Starting with verse 13. Now listen, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. And now the challenge. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. The word, the direct word of James, of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Gail. Got to take a little, little sidebar here because Julie was talking about how she likes to get up early in the morning and, or did, and go watch the sunrises. I know there were a few times I've gotten up in the morning and wondered where she was and went out and looked in the garage and the car was gone. Can I tell them about the flood? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, she said I can. Um, I think the first winter we were on the coast, we had a major flood. I mean, the Coast Guard was driving their boats up and down Highway 101. That's how deep the water was. And um, I told Julie, we probably shouldn't go out and look because, you know, you could get caught. And I got up one morning, and the car was gone. This was in the flood. She made it home. Um, there's, when you enter Tillamook, Oregon from the south, it's a divided highway. Okay? Go to the right, you go north, and then the left are southbound lanes. And there's this nice little island thing that divides. It's got grass and flowers and shrubs on it. Somebody had driven over that. Because they tried to come back from looking at the flood... And they couldn't follow the northbound lanes because they were lower than the southbounds and were flooded. So whoever it was that when looked at the flood had to drive over that median of grass and flowers and shrubs to get back to our house. 
Whose plan is it anyway? Um, what I'm going to share with you um, this morning is a, a story. It's from the 90s, and um, this is a, a re. This is uh, the New York Times. You can go into the archives um, and and find this story. Um, I think this happened. This story was written about 1995. Um, it says, Andre Francois Raffray thought he had a great deal 30 years ago. So this is 95. We're looking back 30 years. He would pay a 90-year-old woman 2,500 francs, about $500 a month until she died, then move into her grand apartment in a town Vincent van Gogh once roamed. So you get what's happening here? He is giving a 90-year-old woman $500 a month. And when she dies, he will move into her home. Hey, a couple of months, you've got a great new place for a thousand bucks, right? But this Christmas, this is now we're back to 1995, Mr. Raffray died at age 77, having laid out the equivalent of more than $184,000 for an apartment he never got to live in. On that same day, Jean Clement, now listed in the Guinness World Book of Records as the world's oldest person at 120, <laughs> dined on foie gras, duck thighs, cheese, and chocolate cake at her nursing home near the sought-after apartment in Arlais, northwest of Marseille in the south of France. She need not worry about losing income, although the amount Mr. Raffray already paid is more than twice the apartment's current market value. His widow is obligated to keep sending that monthly check. If Mrs. Calment outlives her too, then Raffray's children and grandchildren will have to pay. In life, one sometimes makes bad deals, Mrs. Calment said on her birthday last February 21st, her 120th birthday. The apartment is currently unoccupied, according to local media. Buying apartments in, in and I'm no French speaker, something like that. It means for life, is, a, is common in France. The elderly owner gets to enjoy a monthly income from the buyer who gambles on getting a real estate bargain provided the owner dies in due time. Upon the owner's death, the buyer inherits the apartment regardless of how much was paid. Mrs. Calment, who has lived through the administration of 17 French presidents, has proven the nightmare of all those who buy Real estate um, in that arrangement, in visage or whatever it means, says. Mrs. Calment, physically active all her life, rode a bicycle until she was 100. Our athletic trainer would appreciate that. And until 1985, occupied the, the several large rooms of her apartment on the second floor of a classic old provincial 
building in the center of our lay where Mr. Raffray was in her notary public. She moved that year into a nursing home, which is now named after her. She has outlived her husband, her daughter, and her grandson, who died in a car crash and has no direct descendants. By the way, she lived to be 122. Mr. Raffray thought he was looking into the future and making a shrewd investment. But the fact is, he could not imagine what the future had in store for him. Nor do we. Right? James is giving us today a very clear reminder of how often we plan for the future without the thought of the one who determines the future. So we need to have a proper perspective of the future. And um, first of all, James talks about the foolishness of counting on the future, or at least in the way we think things are going to happen. He says in verse 13, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. In other words, we've got things all lined out. We know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And by the way, James is not speaking solely of business ventures here. He's rather using this as an example that everyone could understand. But we can do that in, in a variety of ways, can't we? We can plan out all kinds of things in our lives. We can say, okay, this month this happens, that next year that happens, this is this I've got it all laid out. Barclay in his commentary on this passage says the Jews were the great traders of the ancient world and in many ways that world gave them every opportunity to practice their commercial abilities. This was an age of the founding cities, and often when cities were founded and their founders were looking for city, citizens to occupy them, citizenship was offered freely to the Jews, for, for where the Jews were came money and trade. So the picture that James is painting here is of a man looking at a map, he points to a certain spot on it and says, here's a new city where there are great trade chances. I'll go there. I'll get in on the ground floor. I'll trade for a year or so. I'll make my fortune and come back rich. I've got it all figured out. Seneca said, how foolish it is for a man to make plans for his life when not even tomorrow is in his control. Sounds like the Bible, doesn't it? Wonder where he got that idea. So we need to understand this. To trust in our own plan is presumption. To trust in God's plan is faith. Psalm 10, verses 4 and 6. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. What a great plan. And James, by the way, is not saying here that we should not plan. In fact, the opposite is true. We're encouraged in the Scripture to plan. Luke 14, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? 
No, our planning is to be based upon the conviction that our lives and our future are not in our own hands, but in the hands of God. And so really there are two problems here with with this person who goes and makes these plans and says, well, here's, I'm going to spend a year, carry on business and get rich. Two problems. The first one is, is arrogance. Pride in making the assumption that we are somehow in control of the future. And the second is the motive behind it. It's completely selfish. Why is the person going to do this? What was the reason? I'm going to go get rich. And so we've got these issues uh, taking place here right at the beginning in the, in the very first verse, uh, or actually two verses of this passage. And then James reminds us in verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. He's talking about the uncertainty of life. And he says, first of all, life is unpredictable. Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Ever had some of those surprises in your life? Um, I don't know if you guys know who the actor John Corbett is. Um, trying to think of... He's been on some television ads and... And uh, my big fat Greek wedding, I think. Okay, that's John Corbett. He was the anyway. He he he's talking. He talks about a movie called All Saints that he will be having the lead uh, part in, and it's about a, an Episcopal priest named Michael Spurlock who's assigned to a small church in Smyrna, Tennessee. That has a, a, a big challenge before him. By the way, this is based on a true story. He's acting in a movie based on a true story. So, Michael Spurlock arrives at All Saints Church with orders to close the church down. That's the plan. The congregation has only a dozen members and can't make the mortgage payments anymore. No reason to keep the place open, right? Not quite. Refugees from Burma show up, Myanmar. There are 70 of them. They're members of the Koren people, ethnic group, and they're observant Anglicans. They want to be part of a church, but their needs go beyond the spiritual. They need jobs, food, places to live. Michael's Priest Michael Spurlock reaches out to them, even though he's not going to be around long enough to make much difference. As soon as he sells the church's acreage, he's gone. But then God gives him an idea. The Koren people were farmers back in Burma. What if they farmed the land the church owned? They could grow their own food, sell the extra produce, maybe help raise money to pay off the church's debt. And that's exactly what happened. It's not what Michael Spurlock expected. It's not what his superiors asked for. It's not at all what he'd been assigned to do. Except it's exactly what God wanted. Life is unpredictable, isn't it? God changes things on us sometimes. We do not know what tomorrow 
might bring. And then, life is immeasurable. In other words, we don't know how much time we have on this planet, do we? A doctor called one of his patients into his office to deliver some very important news. I have received the results of your test and I have some bad news and some good news, said the doctor. The patient was quiet for a moment, sensing the severity of the announcement. Let me have the good news first, doc, said the patient. The doctor took a deep breath and said, you only have 24 hours to live. Oh my goodness, shouted the patient. If that's the good news, what could the bad news possibly be? The doctor replied, I was supposed to tell you yesterday. Life is immeasurable. Listen to all these scriptures that talk about that. Job chapter 7, verse 7. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. Well, we can understand why Job might say that. Psalm 39, 5. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing to you. Each man's life is but a breath. Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. Psalm 144, verse 4. Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. And some are more fleeting than others, aren't they? I remember one time um, when I, we were pastoring in eastern Oregon, when a man on our church who'd had heart issues for years, and I don't know, he was having pain or something, and his wife took him into the emergency room, and I got a call. And so I went down to the hospital and went into ER, and I was visiting him with him, and, you know, the medical people were paying attention to him, and suddenly... The ambulance arrives and brings the man in, and he got left all by himself. This man was 39 years old. He was having a heart attack. And I remember he was in the cubicle right next to us, and the only thing separating us was a curtain. So I could hear absolutely everything that was going on, and they were, what's the code? The code blue. Everybody came. And they were... You know, they were giving him shots with stuff and heart compressions and everything they could do. They lost him. He was 39 years old. And I remember thinking that day as I left the hospital, what 39-year-old wakes up in the morning thinking, I won't be going home tonight. Life is immeasurable. You know, my own mother passed when she was 46 years old. I've outlived her by 20 years. I turned 66 just, well, you know, we celebrated my birthday. Thank you. <laughs> I remember my brother posted something on Facebook saying it's been 46 years since my 46-year-old mom passed. I think Mark... Mark posted that this last spring. Life is immeasurable. So we need faith today for tomorrow, don't we? 
We need faith today for tomorrow. Our lives are to be lived out in recognition of the fact that God is sovereign and control and in control of today and our future. Amen. I hope that's what we believe. Second Timothy chapter one, the second part of verse twelve. Tim, Paul writing to Timothy says, "Because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard." What I have entrusted to him for that day. My future is in God's hands. In fact, Paul verbalizes his belief that ultimately God was in control of his life and circumstances and future a number of times. In, in Acts 18.21, Paul says, but as he, well, they write, as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 4.19, he says, But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. He's dealing with some issues in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 16.7, Paul says, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And he didn't always use that same wording that we just, I just shared with you in those verses. There are other times where he speaks of the plans he has made without reference to the Lord's will. And yet I believe that God's will and God's plan and God's sovereignty were always in Paul's thinking. And James is calling us to a different attitude than we see in this first, in the first verses of this passage today. A different way of thinking. It's approaching life with the attitude that I want what God wants because I know that what God wants for me is good for me. In fact, it's the best for me. Do you believe that being in the center of God's will is the best place to be? I do. It's living in order to do God's will in all things. And I think God is pleased when people wrestle with knowing what God's will is in their lives. You know, I've had, in my years of pastoral ministry, I've had a lot of people come to me who were wrestling with an issue, a major decision in their lives, and trying to discern what God's will was in that, and asking for my input and my prayer for them because they wanted to get it right. You know, I'm not sure it has to be a struggle or the struggle that it sometimes is. Although I think there can be benefit in the process. You hear what I'm saying? Not sure it always has to be this big struggle to know, to find God's will in your life. But I think there can be benefit in the process of discerning His will for your life. It's like some of the other things God takes us through at times. Some of the the difficulties we face in life. And as God takes us through the journey of that difficulty, He has things He wants to do in us and through us. And I think sometimes as we're seeking to know God's will for our lives, it's that same kind of process that happens. 
He takes us, he brings us to the place where we're seeking him in ways that we might not otherwise because we really do want to know what his will for our lives is. We don't want to miss it. But I'm, but too, I think that it's not always, I think sometimes we picture God's will as, well, you've, you've seen these pictures of these mazes. You know, it's kind of like the mouse at one end, the cheese at the other, and it's like, ink, bonk, no, ink, bonk, no, ink, bonk, no, ink, And you, well, maybe you've tried to, you know, you draw the pencil line through, and it's like, man, I cannot. And maybe to some degree, we have to learn some things as we come to those dead ends, but I, I don't believe finding God's will is this impossible maze, and We'll never get to the cheese at the other end. God wants us to know his will for our lives. And it may be a bit of struggle to get there, but I think again that there's purpose in that struggle and things God wants to, uh, to do in us as we move toward discerning what his will for our lives is in a particular area. I do believe that if we are walking in intimate fellowship with him, and that should be the norm for Christ's followers. Right? And that means that we're continually seeking Him, not just when we have a need or want to know something. If we're walking in intimate fellowship with Him, then we will tend to make godly choices, godly, decision and, godly decisions and godly plans. Amen? That will be the norm for us, not the exception. See, we are encouraged to know and do God's will for our lives. Colossians 1.9, For this reason, Paul writes, Since the day we've heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I shared that in Sunday school class this morning. We pray that for our children and our grandchildren, that they would have a knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We want them to walk in His ways. We want them to do His will. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And how do we know God's will? Well, We'll probably never know how it is all supposed to play out ahead of time. God just doesn't let us see down the road that far, does he? It's a, it tends to be a step at a time. But we can know what the next step is. And according to where God has directed us up to this point, make plans for the next step. And being willing then as God directs to make a change at some point, if that's what he leads us to do. How many of you have ever been through Henry Blackaby's stuff, Experiencing God? Have you done that? Yeah, great stuff. And here's what Henry Blackaby says about discerning, discovering God's will. He said, number one, pray, ask him about it. Number two, be in the scripture. What's he telling you through his word right now? 
Number three, be mindful of what he's doing in in the circumstances of your life. Sometimes we begin to see things happen in our lives that start moving us in another direction, don't we? You know, when I went to college, I was a biological science major. I never had plans to be standing behind a pulpit. And we got involved in a church, and we were very involved in a church. And the pastor came to me and said, you know what? The church is growing, and I want to bring somebody on staff who is a part of this church and knows the people and knows the direction we're heading. And I'd like you to consider being that person. It, it took us three months of prayer to make a decision. But see, things were happening around us that were beginning cluing, cluing us in to this is the direction God seems to be moving us right now. And then seek the counsel of trusted, mature believers. The counsel of the members of the body of Christ. Allow them to speak into your life as well. And God will show you the way he wants you to go, the thing he wants you to do next. And then, I think it's interesting how how James wraps this whole thing up. And he says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. What? Does that fit here? Well, I think it does. I think it does. First of all, we need to understand that delayed obedience is disobedience. If we know what we're supposed to do and don't do it, if we stall God off, if we say, Lord, I don't speak so good, could you get somebody else to go to Pharaoh for me? God may not be pleased with that. In fact, he won't be pleased with that. James is saying, if you know what you're supposed to do now, do it. Alright? If you know what you're supposed to be doing right now, keep doing that thing. We cannot know the future, but we must be obedient in the present. Make sense? Okay, where does God have you right now? What does God have you doing? Be obedient to that right now. And if you know what you're supposed to be doing right now and aren't doing it, that is sin. And then trust God to lead you into the future that He has for you. Luke 12:47 The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. You can sin by doing nothing. Someone came up with this clever little poem. It says, "Procrastination is my sin." It brings me naught but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. (laughs) Have you noticed that when you procrastinate doing the right thing, that you often end up doing the wrong thing? Just because you didn't do the right thing. Knowing what should be done obligates a person to do it. So what is James saying about all this? Well, he's saying this. First of all, we need the right motive for doing what we're doing, and that is to do the will of God. Right? 
we need to let go of our pride. In other words, we trust God to direct our future, not being, not make our plans and say, God, would you bless these? And finally, we need to admit, to admit that we are not in, conchar- in charge or in control. Because we're not. We like to think we are, but we're not. That's the core issue. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? That's ultimately the question we have to answer, isn't it? And it doesn't matter if you're making plans for business or for family or for service to the kingdom. Ultimately, we need to follow God's plan. It's what Nathan Covington talked to us about when he was here. We need to determine what God's blueprint for our church and our lives is and follow that blueprint. Amen? Father, we come to you today with gratitude for the fact that your spirit speaks to us so clearly through the truth of Scripture. And we have this tendency, and it's encouraged in the culture we live in, to make your own way and do your own thing and be independent. And the list goes on of the things that we're encouraged to do that have nothing to do with what you've called us to do as followers of Jesus Christ, to understand that you have a plan for our lives. Well, the scripture says a hope and a future for us, but so often we go off on our own and we make our own decisions about those things and we kind of set the course for our future with the way we think it should happen when, Lord God, that may not be what you want for us at all. And help us to remember that We're not in control. We've surrendered our lives to you. You're the one in charge. You are to be Lord of our lives. And so my prayer for me and for us is that we would truly have a knowledge of your will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because we know that walking in your ways is the best way to walk. It's the place of blessing. It's a place of peace because we know, Father, we're in the center of your will. And so our prayer is that we will always say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, whatever that means for us. For your honor and glory and for our obedience to you as your people. And Father, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.